Baskin's emerging tech and venture capital practice is comprised of 80-plus dedicated legal professionals across the Canadian market. We're deeply involved in the startup ecosystem and have worked closely with founders from startup to scale to exit. Our team is a leading Canadian law firm for VC financings and tech M&A and act for many of the best-in-class startup and scale-up innovation-based companies and entrepreneurs in Canada. Given this experience, we understand market trends and can assist in guiding your company forward as you scale. We take a holistic and strategic approach to helping our clients achieve their goals and provide the full suite of services including corporate, corporate finance, M&A, commercial, IP, data and compliance, employment, tax and beyond. We are excited to help the next generation of unicorns. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Menender Dhaliwal. Menender is the President and CEO of Lionsgate International. LGI is a venture capital and business advisory firm specializing in international venture projects and technology, mainly focused on Canada, the US, and Southeast Asia. She's the founding chair of Thai Incubation Lab, based in Vancouver. Thai Incubation Lab is focused on supporting Canadian pre-seed startups. The lab supports Thai Vancouver's mission of fostering Canadian entrepreneurs by providing high-potential Canadian startups with mentorship, access to a network of Canadian, US, and global strategic advisors, support with preparing for the fundraising process, and introductions to the worldwide investor network, Angels. In this episode, we discuss Meninder immigrating to Canada from India in 1999, the genesis story of Lionsgate, why her first 10 investments didn't work out and what she learned, the gap that exists between Canadian and American founders and how to bridge that, nuances between tech ecosystems in Vancouver, SF, and Singapore, why she looks for adaptive stubbornness in founders, commercializing research from universities in Canada, if you chase clients, investors chase you, and what founders should look for in investors. Please enjoy my conversation with Menender Dhaliwal. I'd love to start with your time. So you came to Canada from India in around 1999. Why did you choose, did you come for university? And if so, why did you choose UBC and engineering? I've always been a nerdy kid. <laughs> People say engineering made me a nerd. No, I already was. Engineering just gave me right words to describe my innermost feelings. That's what I would say. So I was always meant to be an engineer. Uh, UBC gave me a scholarship. So that was absolutely wonderful. I got into a couple of universities in the US and Canada and UBC had the best program that I wanted to go to and they gave me a scholarship. And of course, you know, they sent the brochure with all the nice photos and everything. And by the way, I still go running in the same neighborhood every week. So <laughs> once they send the brochure, oh, British Columbia, beautiful British Columbia, you're hooked. What was some of your early work experience? Did you decide to stick in engineering, uh, specifically in Vancouver? Did you go elsewhere? What was what did you do after university? Well, my focus was AI, and it was AI applications, especially in electrical systems. So uh, after that, I worked for a consulting firm for several years, and that's where I learned how to sell to market companies, which I use every day. But yes, I was a consultant for about six years before I realized that my ability to research uh, applications of AI and technology was where I wanted to go. And that it's just one step after the other. There wasn't a grand plan. It never was. And, but that's where we ended up. And I think I ended up where I actually, uh, would have wanted to anyway. So yes, it's, uh, but it just one step at a time. You try to do the best job you can in every situation. Try to work with the smartest people there and try to learn as much as possible. It's interesting kind of researching, studying AI in the early 2000s and, and, and where we are today, where it's, you know, it's, it's a topic that, you know, basically every conversation I have nowadays involves artificial intelligence. How have you, what's it been like seeing it evolve over the last 20 years? Has it 
did what you predict or where you thought or the speed of which it'd be adopted, was it different than you had originally thought in the early 2000s or is it kind of in line with what you imagined? In early 2000, we thought we would have the Jetsons technology in three to four years, right after us now. And I think it's the right time. The technology, it's, it's not enough type of technology. The world has to be ready for it. And I think it's just incredible. And I remember my thesis at UBC, I daisy chained uh, 17 computers in a laboratory. And I did this over Christmas holidays because I'm an international student and everybody else was not there. So I was able to take over all the computers split the algorithm into multiple parts, daisy chain those computers. And my iPhone now has more power than each of those computers I had at that time. So it is a great time to be in AI. And it's, uh, I would say it's, it's the time now and it is the right time. It wasn't the right time 20 years I guess you mentioned there just like always being interested in technology and the kind of innovation space. I guess, you know, where did that come from? Was it just something you were just kind of, born with and just naturally curious about? And um, how did that lead into Lionsgate? Yeah, I would say technology. What has been, uh, you know, my, my dad is also an engineer. And one of the things we did, and this was, I would say, a, a constant um, uh, issue for my mother because we would buy a new equipment and he would open it up. And we would no longer have warranty on it, but he would open it up and see how it works on the inside. And as, as a kid, I was the one who handed the screwdriver or the wrench and he was working on a bigger machine. So it's, I, I learned this is how, what makes things tick, and how do you learn it and how do you make it better? So it's always been in my blood and, and engineering, I said, it just gave me formal way to explain things, which I already felt. How did that lead into Lionsgate? So you have the natural curiosity, you're in the yes. space, you study in the space. What kind of led to Lionsgate and just, you know, Everything. I was a consulting engineer, uh, and, and and you realize there's all this world out there. And as an immigrant, you have to build a safety net. And this is something only immigrants would understand. I'm actually uh, reading a book about psychology of money, and they talk about where you grew up is a part of how you think about things. And I'm like, wow, that is so fundamental. So as an immigrant, you build a safety net. So there's food on your table and roof over your head, and you're experimenting. So once I had enough, I was like, Let's find who's doing what I find interesting and figure it out. And Lionsgate came out of, it was, um, I'm going to say it's the same formula. I've been just repeating it at multiple levels. Uh, we were getting a lot of approaches from North American businesses trying to move to Southeast Asia, expand there. And Southeast Asian businesses try to expand into the U.S. and, and Canada, U.S. most. And the traditional format was you take their investment banking deck and you make a list of people that would be interested in either buying partial or investing in some way or acquiring the company. And this was the traditional way. And I was a, you know, a junior person working with really experienced people. And I was like, uh, in my thought, and this was sort of the idea that I built my entire career on, think that rather than waiting to find a suitor where everything is fit perfectly, how about you try to actually build a business in the geography you want to go? So you have clients and so you have testimonials that are local, you have application. So, you know, a business partner of mine called it the Meninder Dollywall way, which is going the long way to get there fast. And I found that was where Lionsgate came. We formalized as, as you have a lot of opportunities with Indian conglomerates, they're always looking for North American tech. And once you have a formula, why not repeat it? Because you actually make money the second and the third time. The first time you just learn, so it costs you money. So that's what the origin of Lionsgate was, the formula. And if you look at, you know, the, and as I was an angel investor, I was investing in those early stage, super early stage. And Lionsgate is post-series A. So this is either you're looking for a series B or a series C, or you're looking at an M&A or a private equity partial buyout or a full buyout. It doesn't apply to IPO. You would do it maybe a year before the IPO, but you're making a project any kind of a business, mostly technology, uh, more interesting to a larger group of people and interesting at a higher price. So you are taking the demand and supply equation and trying to tilt it in your favor. Uh, so once I, when I was uh, investing in early stage companies, the first 10 I invested, the money didn't come back. And someone says, oh, you write 10 checks and one of them is a unicorn and three or four don't and they all 10 died. I'm like, oh, okay. I, I, 
<laughs> I think, oh, what, what am I doing wrong? Unless you talk to the founder. I found the same pattern was if some input had gone in to make them hustle a little bit more rather than waiting for the, you know, after pre-seed, 12 months later, there's a seed and 12 months later, series A. It's not a given. So we took that same formula, and of course, it applies differently. It's not the, the for, format is the same, application is different, the speed is different, and that's where the startup studio came in, and that is pre-series A, and Lionsgate is post-series. So we have d different buckets within the same business, and I know you're going to ask me a question about Thai Incubator, but I can answer it right away. When During the pandemic, I had a fair bit of spare time, and I've been a member of Thai, and they have the biggest angel group in the world, and super, and that is... Super easy when, when you, I'm going to say, and me to out of this part, what I'm trying to say is it is super effective when as a startup, you have more people that understand you, what you're doing, you have access, your warm intros. It's a numbers game in the end. Speed especially depends upon the numbers game. So when I brought uh, Ty to Canada during the pandemic, uh, this was the first time in my life I had a spare time in 20 years, and this is what I did with it. And we found that Canadian founders had the translation issue to the American investors. The same formula, the same problem in a slightly different package all over again. And that's where the Thai incubator came in. So I have donated three series, a, I'm going to say pre-seed business of Startup Studio to Thai. For as long as I'm involved in Thai, we do pre-seed companies through Thai. And that's where the incubator came in. So it's basically, I'm a one-trick pony but it's a really good trick and it's a really big party. So you mentioned like, you know, your first 10 investments didn't work out the way you wanted them to. Mm -hmm. What motivated you to keep going? I feel like a significant portion of people who made that many investments and they all went to zero would say, you know, I'm done with this early stage tech investing. I'm finished. What kind of motivated you to keep going? Did you just kind of realize, hey, I maybe I made some issues with choosing these types of founders or these types of businesses. And if I actually had focused like this, it would have been better or? Well, I would say two things. The first one was a fundamental belief that application of technology improves life. And it improves lives for all 7 billion people. It is asymmetrically distributed, but everybody benefits. It takes time for some people. So I fundamentally believe technology is a force of good. And the second part would be the founders. You get to spend time, and this is sort of the best part of our job, is to spend time with smart people, passionate building things that will change the world. And they strongly believe. They put everything they have in it. And, you know, one of the lines I use with my founders is, what's the difference, you know, we were having breakfast with one of the founders, and I was like, what's the difference between, you know, the, the, the bacon and eggs? The uh, chicken was interested, but the pig was committed. So the interest, the investors are just interested. The founders are committed. And I have a lot of respect for that. I always had. And that just keeps you going is meeting those most founders and wanting to help them. And of course, it's, you know, it's the easiest way to feel optimistic in a world where everything is a downer. You cannot feel not optimistic when you're working with surrounded with people like that. You mentioned earlier too with, with Ty there and kind of that, you know, maybe that gap or hurdle for Canadian companies mm -hmm. with like American investors. What do you find is like the, the biggest nuance there? And obviously you've been doing this for a while. Has that gap kind of closed? Have Canadian founders learned, uh, you know, that playbook better because there's a lot more Canadians in U.S. tech or like yeah. investors are coming north of the border more? Or is that gap still exists? Gap exists, but it's much smaller that in my experience. So that is a great thing. And a lot of it is. Uh, you know, you can follow any investor in San Francisco on Twitter and see what they're tweeting about, what they're excited about. And in those lunch photos and dinner photos and photos of their car, there is nuggets that are incredibly, they're accessible. So it's access. So you do need somebody who's curious, who wants to learn more. So the information is all there. So uh, we, uh, as a business, we get a summary of a lot of the blogs and what the thought leadership has been done in a week and read through it. As a founder, all you need is an internet connection and all that is accessible. In some ways, the gap still exists, and that is to do with, more to do with, you know, as an early stage, you invest in what you know, what, what is familiar to you. So the familiarity thing is as old as humanity, and that has not changed, and I don't think that will change. 
Uh, and I always encourage Canadian founders to go to at least one U.S. conference a year on your topic, go to one global a year somewhere in Southeast Asia or Europe. You see what the world is doing, and that will add a sophistication to what you talk about. So uh, when it comes to innovation, Canada is second to none. In fact, our government programs are the most generous in G7 per capita. That's not an issue. We are producing innovation at a super high rate per capita. When it comes to converting it into commercial, lot of it is investment, but a lot of it is experts who have built us some companies in that space who can help you. So there we still have a gap and we need to build more bridges to our expat Canadians. And this is what we're trying to do to tie to build global bridges. So those, we need to do more work. And I think we will always need to do more work. But if the gap is definitely less and the founders are not restricted by the geography, curious to learn what's happening. How do you bridge some of those gaps, right? So we, there is a strong, you know, Canadians have been very successful. If you look south of the border, Uber, Instacart, Roblox, uh, Cloud, like the, the list goes on and on. How do we really like get those people more activated back into the Canadian ecosystem? Um, yeah, just kind of curious of your thoughts on like how we kind of strengthen that. There are one thing I would say is I've never talked to a Canadian in the U.S. who didn't want to help. They are True. extremely generous, extremely uh, eager to help. Uh, they do have full-time jobs, multiple boards, multiple their LPs. And so it's some management of their time is how do we uh, make it so that we only, we make the most of the time that they are able to give us. So I think that is the question. They don't need to be motivated anymore. They're extremely motivated. And that is groups like C100. It's a group like the Thai Incubator. In fact, a lot of our advisors are Canadians living in the U.S. because I use my dual nationalities to for the benefit of Canadian founders. And once you reach out to somebody who is either an Indian and they know of Thai or they're a Canadian and I said, I'm based out of Canada. And so I think that's where the angle is. How do we systematize it? And we've done it through the incubator. And some of the ways we do it when we work with founders, we first use local experts to get them to a point where the U.S. and advisors information is effective and top. So that's the thing is, but we have to be ready to receive information in a way that's effective. And that means that's the work that we have to do in advance before we talk to them. But they would be extremely, uh, other than Thai, if there's any organizations I would like to know. And we're happy to uh, speak with them and partner up because in the end, Americans, Canadian Americans, they want to help us. Canadian founders need that help. The pull is there on both sides. I know in our pre-chat, you mentioned, you know, you spend time in Vancouver, Bay Area, Singapore. What do you find different, you know, and obviously it's not every single founder, but maybe like general consensus there. Is there major differences or nuances between founders in these different areas? It's not so much skill set, but maybe like also mindset as well of like, hey, what is possible to achieve? Like what kind of outcome are you looking for? Um, are there things that we could take from other ecosystems you spend time in that could be beneficial to Canada? I think founders are product of the ecosystems they're surrounded by. Uh, the all three groups have founders that are excellent in different ways. Uh, in Southeast Asia, it is the 996 culture. You work 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. Uh, you, uh, you can call somebody at 8 p.m. at night. It's never like, is it a good time? They never ask. If it's a business call, they will take a work call. Oh, what's the noise in the background? Oh, my kid's getting married. So I just got into a closet to take a Zoom call. So that is the culture in Southeast Asia. For the founders is, you know, we, we had a call. It was like 2 a.m. in Bangalore where the guy was at that time. He's like, oh, no problem. No problem. We'll make it work. And he was on the call. So, and it was an oversight or organizer's part, not knowing that I was traveling, but he didn't even bring it up. We found it after the fact. That it was so that is something that I think everybody can take is really, really working hard at what you're doing. That is the Southeast Asia's asset. Uh, the asset for this uh, San Francisco is thinking big. These guys are don't think of anything other than a unicorn, and that I think is highly useful for all founders everywhere thinking big about what they're building. What Canadians do best is 
humility and ability to take advice. That is the Canadian asset. In fact, you know, when we, uh, we work with a lot of Canadian founders, my accelerator, we talk to American investors, they say, oh, what a nice guy. I'm like, there's 40 million of us and they're all nice. This is our Canadian characteristic is we are humble and it is just a joy to talk to Canadian founders, but Canadian founders can learn the swagger from the Americans and we can learn answering emails on Mondays and Fridays <laughs> from Southeast Asia. So everybody brings something to the table, but as a founder, you, in general, you invested so much into your company, you really care. And that is a universal truth. You know, I like, I'm just interested, but they're committed. So you can't find flaws in that. But I think the merging of ideas from all the ecosystems together benefits everybody because we all have uh, assets that we bring to the table that we all, others can learn from. We can learn from others and they can learn from us. You work with a lot of early stage founders, but also ones that make it past that series A point and into scaling. And we already kind of talked about, you know, maybe you know, connect, connecting those bridges to the U.S. to help with that scaling issue. But from like a founder perspective, are there kind of like attributes or things that you notice that, okay, yes, it, you know, fantastic. You've got to that seed stage and maybe you're kind of growing a little bit versus like those founders that have that large scale. Is there little attributes or, or things that you see founders doing to like, maybe they find the right advisors or they're doing the right things to maybe grow with that business and scale? I think, um, the jury's still out on this one. In our own business, I, we have multiple partners who would give you a different answer. So I'm going to give you my answer. Uh, a lot of the success is, uh, I would say I separate startups when we evaluate. And this is just my personally as an angel investor. And we have different, different stages, but early stage. One is the product uh, slash, I'm going to say, what are you building? And the market that it's going into or the industry sector. The second one is the timing. And the third one is the attributes of the founding team. Those are the three factors that come into play. When it comes to the product and the market, you have what I would call instinct. You have the ability to pivot, you have the ability to change. The timing is completely out of your hand. Sometimes you luck out, you start something, and when you are ready for uh, investor conversation three years later, you are the darling of the investor world and you build, sometimes you build something and it's not. So that you do not control. And that plays a huge role. And of course, there's a lot of disagreements around it. People think the founder with an X factor and overcome it. I don't think you can, but that is out of your hands. Third part with the founder, being a founder is, I'm going to say it's a really tough job. It's a tough job. One day you are hanging out with your uh, you know, college friends eating Raymond in a dorm room. And the next thing you are in a boardroom and now you're supposed to be an executive who's taking this company to an IPO. You have to convince people. And it's like, there was no time that has passed between part one and part ages me how resilient they are. But that also, when you start a company, your founder has to be as stubborn as possible because everybody gives you reasons why this would not succeed. You have to believe strongly and almost pigheadedly but this is going to work. When it comes to the second, when it comes to, I'm going to say pre-series A or seed, now you have people who know more about the industry, about the market than you do. But at the same time, founder has more skin in the game than anybody. So at that time, the founder has to adapt to what I call wrong opinions held loose. Where you are listening to what everybody's saying, and some of them are contradictory information, you're putting all in your hand and deciding this is what we're doing. So I would say that ability to mature, which is, I'm going to say, an unnatural feed, is one of the things that differentiate founders amongst everything else being equal, who would make it or not make it. Because there is not enough time to do things first. And some founders, there's nothing to do with age. They instinctively get it. And that's what we are trying to guess as we are doing intro calls and trying to judge a project. Because early stage, there are fundamental flaws. I mean, every founder has a flat line and a hockey stick curve. As somebody who's seen so many projects, I know there's going to be, there's going to be epic battles between the flat line and the up. It's not going to be as smooth as everybody thinks it is. And at that time, the only difference is, is this founder going to keep showing up? And is this founder going to have what I would call adaptive stubbornness? 
and that is the difference. And sometimes you see it and sometimes people have the, that kernel, that grain, and then you try to build it further. And this is where working with somebody who's built this whole company in your space successfully is there's nothing like it because they are in your shoes. They were in your shoes, but they've seen what happens six steps after and they would be able to help you. So that's what I advise founders anywhere in the ecosystem you are. Find the top person who's built and sold company in your space and find a way to spend time with them because that would be game. Adaptive stubbornness is a really cool term. I, I, I really like that. Um, every founder is different. Every business is different. Timing's different, like everything. But are there common mistakes that you see amongst founders, especially at the early stage, Again, there's nuances to everything, but I'm sure there are like a few like prime examples of like, hey, I see this, you know, a significant amount of the time. I would say it's some of them are more issues with the project and not the founder themselves. And that would be going too far before talking to an actual customer. And your friends and family were ready to buy anything you sell them because you're a likable person and they want to help you. But have you talked to somebody who actually has no uh, incentive to help you with doing a cold core and a cold sale. So we recommend a lot of that before you think you have a business. Uh, that would be one thing. And the second part, I would say uh, a lot of the times, and this is really hard. I wouldn't say it's a founder's fault. It is when you start out, you have friends and family. So you look for the smartest person in your closest circle and they are your advisors. And if the startup is moving as fast as it needs to, every 12 to 18 months, you will have new friends. And that becomes, because the speed is so, you know, not compared to anything else we do in life, where we get a lot more time to adapt. This I find is you keep getting advice, which is no longer relevant to you and was relevant to you a year or 18 months ago. But this is where it becomes tricky. And I actually don't have an answer what to do that because when you get the first set of advisors, they are your local people, your friends and family, the smartest people you know. In 12 to 18 months, you have other people who are more experienced. And when you, as you move and move through the rounds, you end up with a lot of what I would call inactive cap table. They were relevant at one point. They're not relevant. So I can't tell you what you do with it, but I, this is an issue that we find we see a lot, especially high-tech startups in health tech and climate where the first advisor was a professor at a university. But that's, that's the best person they knew at the time. So they had to go with that. And then you have a guy who's building sold unicorns in your space. And then how do you tell your old advisors, I'm sorry, we can hang out, but you no longer have the relevant information for me. And that is a, that is a really, and Canadians, because we tend to be so nice, that is especially, that <laughs> becomes a bigger problem. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. But it's not so much a founder, issue it is just the way things are you mentioned earlier too kind of how much innovation is happening in canada particularly in our universities and i find i have this conversation quite often too of like how do we commercialize more of that innovation that's happening um it, it has happened successfully quite a few times yes. but how do we what do you think are some ways that we can really turn that into kind of a well-oiled machine and we can get more things commercialized is there kind of major issues or problems that are solvable, or is it just really a nuanced space? I think it's a series of nuances. And the, I will start at the beginning where uh, PhDs, and we work uh, a lot with deep tech. A lot, of, a lot of them are PhDs in the space. And some of them actually, Evan, are not interested in commercial. They're having a good time working in the lab, and I think we should leave them be. They're <laughs> telling them to bend everybody to our system. And I, I strongly believe is, does the, uh, does the inventor want to commercialize? That is the first question I would ask. Yes. But let's, let's say they do. Let's assume they do. And at that point, it's the access to, uh, first of all, not all innovation is scalable at a level at which, at which it would attract capital. So that's the first thing is we, that, and that's what we do the incubator project we get in. We quickly talk to, people who are C-suite in the Fortune 5 and Global 2000 in that, the highest experts in that space and say, would you buy this? And, and sometimes you have a G-Wiz innovation, but it doesn't actually have um, a 
I would say, uh, easy to go to market, or maybe the timing is just not there. Example, I would give you somebody built an enzyme to create something, and this would be, and I, is uh, that would solve an industrial process. But the only issue is you need hundreds of kilograms of this enzyme in large containers to make a little bit of the final product. So it's a great white paper. It's a great research. The guys even with the Nobel Prize, but it's not commercialization at this time, unless we have market forces where we run out a certain product and the price goes up. You know what I mean? So first step is, does the inventor want to commercialize? Uh, number two, is it actually a GWIS thing or is it actually, or it has an application? And after that, it is access to uh, capital. It is access to people who built and sold companies. And Stanford had done this absolutely beautiful where they're commercializing innovation. And a lot of it is just the system. And in uh, Canada, CDL is doing a great job with, and I'm, I'm a fan of what they're doing, is bringing research, giving them access to people who are more, camp in work, I'm going to say investor-focused or built and sold companies and filtering it through the process. And only a number will remain. And at that time, you fund them, you help them to get to the market. And I will say it's a uniquely Canadian issue. I see it everywhere I travel. That comes up, <laughs> you know, how do we commercialize more, more research? We have all this pattern. And by the way, Canadians, there was stats I read that per capita, Canadians are filing more patents than anywhere uh, except for a couple of countries. So we are filing a lot of patents. Uh, the other way that could work, and this is where UK has actually picked a specialty. They've picked that the government is going to support health, health tech. So rather than scattered efforts, they just pick a sector and focus on that. So those are a couple of ways to do, but I think the uh, rising tide lifts all boats and organizations like the Tide Incubator and all the marketing we do around it, organizations like the CDL, we are trying to change it at the grass level is tell people that you have something that is, you can get more than a PhD, you can actually build a business around. In our pre-chat, you had an interesting quote, if you chase clients, investors chase you. And we kind of talked about that a few questions back of just like that focus on getting clients, talking to clients. Um, I guess just what do you, what do you notice as a, a difference between maybe a founder that, you know, is using their warm network and maybe they get a client or two and someone who's kind of creating a repeatable process, maybe talking to 10 plus customers a week. Uh, does that really affect the outcome of those companies? Yes, I believe it does. And in tough markets like yours today, it definitely does. In good days, people will take a risk. And this was 2021, 2022. I mean, we see things funded that made no sense. <laughs> You're like, okay, well, <laughs> you know, and, um, and we actually have, we're tracking some companies, which we didn't make sense to us. We rejected them at all. And somebody uh, is giving them a million dollars because these investors were not technology investors by default. They didn't understand that, okay, just because uh, and something sounds like a great thing, but they've not talked to a single customer. And having money is sometimes good for a founder because you get to test it out in the luxury style and not the... But yes, talking to customers, there is absolutely, I'm going to say, no more fundamental thing to building a company is who are you building it for? So we call it, you know, there's three acronyms that come into play. And one is GTM, go-to-market, PMF, product market fit, and TAM, TAM, total addressable market. I just call it AM, addressable market. Well, does any and product market fit? Does anybody want to buy what you're building? I think that is super fundamental. Addressable market, is there enough people so you can build a business? I mean, having a factory for six-fingered blogs make a great press release, but it doesn't make a good business. Like how many people are going to buy these clubs? So that is the addressable market. And it is so fundamental. I see you smiling because it, once you talk about startups, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, that, it makes sense to me, right? And the third part is uh, go-to-market strategy. Can you get to those people in, in the allotted time and money you have? So I may have an amazing product, but it's really hard to get to people who would buy it or it doesn't match their sales cycle. Buying cycle is three years. I only have one year's money if I'm going to do it. And the, where this is where the fourth acronym comes in, CAC, CAC. 
customer acquisition cost. So at Series A, founders are grilled on these numbers because that's the only way you raise Series is numbers are good. And I tell C-suite founders, imagine if you get into the end deck, what a whole are investors happy with you because you know, so you are ahead, one year ahead of the curve. But these are super fundamental things. And let's say if you were building crypto in 2021, they were not asked only, but they will be asked eventually. In tough markets like this, everybody's asked no matter what you're building. And in the end, if the, and, you know, investors, like I said, we're just interested. Okay, we put money in, assuming 90% of the time it's not going to come back. But as a founder, this is years of your life. This is second mortgage. This is the holidays you didn't take. This is the hockey academy your kid didn't go to because you're invested in this. You need to be serious about this more than anybody else. That this is actually a fundamentally solid business and it succeeds. So if you could get started on this on seed, you will not have a lot of this figured out. But the fact that you know all these things would increase your chances of getting funded. And it's not just funded, funded from the investors who are sophisticated. You can have money that doesn't do anything for you other than pay your bills for a year. And then now you have people on the cap table that are not really helping you. <laughs> and the other thing is increasing the pre-money. And that is one of the things we talk about at the incubator multiple times. Canadian pre-seeds up 3.5 to 5 million Canadian. You can't really raise enough to do anything without that. And at Series A, the founder needs to own about 70 to 80% before Series A and 50 to 30 after. Because the person who's got, who's keep turning the lights on and turning the lights off at the end of the day and all in the beginning of the day, needs to own enough. Otherwise, it's a key man or a key person risk, right? All of us don't make our money back if this founder says, hey, I only own 10% of the company. I'm going to go do something else. So you're keeping dilution. You're keeping the free money. So founders, it's not about raising fast. It's about raising fast. It's from raising from the best investors. But it's looking, what can you do to increase your free money? Because if you do the first round at 8 million free money or you do it three and a half, your paths diverge completely in the beginning. You have to work really, really hard to catch up. So those are all the things founders need to pay attention to. And this is sort of our mission at Thai. We do seminars and presentations and workshops. And uh, a lot of it is just, uh, you know, we give, free, we give pizza and drinks to bring them in, but then hoping some of it sticks. <laughs> but that's where we try to tell them that there is more to just putting a deck together and trying to get meetings with investors. You have a lot of power and a lot of agency to build the startup in a way you want to, in a way it's going to be more likely to. So you mentioned great investors there. I know you're doing a session upcoming with kind of with Boris Wirtz. And I feel like there's more and more great investors coming online all the time here in Canada. It's definitely accelerated in the last decade. It, what advice do you give to founders when they're, they're like, let's say they do have a fantastic business, they've hit all these metrics, and maybe they do have the option to have a few different investors and have that option. Uh, what should they be asking investors? Uh, what should they, should they be looking for, for like alignment? And I guess, you know, just what should founders look for in investors? I think you're looking for somebody who will continue to help you. That's more than a check. Uh, you are looking for somebody who has networks and access because money is great, but if you're spending a million dollars to achieve anything, you will run out of those millions really quickly. So what networks and what access they bring to the table, what other assets they bring to Because in the end, once we are on the cap table, we are all in the same boat. And it needs to succeed for everybody to do well. And that's the question I would ask is what, what what else can you do for me in addition to money? What else, what else can you help me with? And as much stuff as you can get for free would help you with the burn rate. And that, that's right. The other, it's really hard to, you know, it depends upon when you are getting money from a fund, which partner joins your board. That could be a huge factor later on. And not if it depends upon you know, uh, who you approach. And that I think may be a bit more complex, but I would recommend founders to go to a lot of these events, especially something like Tide or Super Affordable and, you know, that all the uh, government organizations, uh, Innovation Saskatchewan, Alberta Innovates, Innovates BC, they hold a lot of events where they bring a lot of people, go to a lot of events, see them in action, ask them questions, get to know them. Like just as uh, uh, investors are due diligence on you, you can do due diligence on them. Talk to them over 
months and years before you take a check from them. And where it all comes down to is if you have more people willing to write you a check, then you need money. Now you're negotiating from a position of strength. Because the other thing, let's not forget, there are preferred shares and term sheets with multiple conditions. If you're negotiating from a position of strength, you have a lot more ability to affect those changes rather than say, oh, I don't have an option but to sign this because I don't have any other people at the table. So uh, educate yourself as a founder. Put your, uh, negotiate from a position of strength. Negotiate from a position of where you have more options. And like I said, if you have a good project and there's a risk that you know, founders have to chase investors. I mean, we take some days like 20 intro calls and there was somebody that comes in. We just, after the call ends, we're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> we just have to remember to mute ourselves. Our enthusiasm would give us away because and it is the, it's true from the other way around as well. Having founders that are just, they jump a little higher and move a little faster and it's like, pick a little bigger. Those are not that common. So if the scarcity problem is not just on the farmer side, it's on the investor side as well. I'd love to get your opinion on, anecdotally, I see a lot more women, a lot more immigrants in the tech scene, whether they're on the founder side, investor side. But again, I don't think it's, it, it, it's where it should be. What are some things that people can do, whether they're on the investor side, the founder side, maybe just in the tech ecosystem, what are, what are some things we can do? What are some barriers that still exist, in your opinion? Well, I've seen this for a few years now, and I don't think we're going to resolve it in my lifetime. <laughs> but the needle is moving. It's moving really slowly, but it is moving. And the first step to solving the problem is acknowledging we have one. And it is unanimous in the industry that we have a diversity. And it is affecting founders because women don't get funded at the same rate. It is affecting what I think is more fundamental is we are the gatekeepers of the technology that is applied to the world. We have 10-minute wine delivery apps getting funded and women's health not getting funded, which I think is a lot more fundamental issue that I think you're trying to approach is we are leaving half of the world behind in what is getting innovation. That means women's health is affected. And it doesn't matter if the startup is funded by a man or helmed by a man or a woman. You are not solving problems for half the world. What the barriers exist early? Yes, they do. At every single stage, they exist. Um, early stage, about 80% is the capability of the founder. And this is highly subjective. We don't have objective information at this point. And as a society, we deem women less competent than men. And if you want to argue with me, I will bring up, I don't, I know you're not arguing, but I will bring up the wage gap. Fundamental thing, female law partners get paid less than male partners. And here there is absolutely nothing subjective. They went to the same law school. <laughs> Why are they paid less? Accounting partners are paid less. So we have a fundamental issue of finding women less competent. And we all have it. I would say women are not free of this bias either. We are all as humans biased. What, what, can, what can we do in our part? And I think it's a little, this is a slow arc, but we have a problem. And when, you know, the, we have pitch sessions and a woman founder comes in, I can see all the investors quietly rooting for her to knock her out of the ballpark because it's like, oh my God, we need her to do well. So <laughs> that is... That is, I, I can sense that. A lot of it is we need to celebrate women who succeed. And that is what primes angel investors. We are all pattern recognition machines. So we need to, and at Thai, we are doing something called Thai Women. It is an annual program where we take the best, uh, the women who can pitch extremely well, and Thai members in BC pay the way of this woman to a Thai global summit, which is in Singapore this year. So this founder pitches with 65 other women from around the world and get exposure to the biggest angel gathering or the one of the biggest angel gatherings in the world to see what's happening. So we, we can all do our part and we all need to do our part, but eventually we need more women check writers. We understand as an industry, we need more women founders. We need more advisors. 
We need more allies. It is not, uh, as I said, a woman problem. It is everybody's problem. When women's health startup, which by the way affects three and a half billion people on the planet and can be a decacore, is not funded. So it is a financial issue for people who are funding and leaving opportunities behind by not doing that. But I think um, we are looking at a long arc to getting to that point. And one of the things that I always would tell female founders and she applies to Canadians as well, or anybody who's an outsider is look at from the perspective of who is making a decision. Angel investors are looking for 10X returns and something that is interesting to investors downstream. We do a seed and nobody picks it up for series A. It is not a business. Funds are looking for an investment to return the entire fund. So those, that's what they're looking for. So if the founder communicates in a way, and that is true for Canadians. I mean, first thing we do to Canadian founders is teach them swagger. <laughs> because that's what Americans are looking for. They're like, they're really humble. Yes, they, but they know what they're talking about. And once you give them, so that is what's missing. And women uh, don't do swagger well. And it's hard to stereotype um, 3.5 billion people as a monolith. So women are like people. We're all different from each other. <laughs> you know, this is like, who is making the decision? What are they looking for? And, but in the, you know, I would love to see the uh, early stage more move. The needle moved from 2%. It is stuck at 2%. It's going 1.8, That's where it stays every year. We look at the numbers. And I, I think, it's a long-term issue. We're, we're doing our part. If we can do more, I would love to know. <laughs> we can go more. And yeah, it's the, the founders, the funders. We need more women check writers. We need more women founders. We need more women advisors. And we need more interest. We need more people, allies, who have built and sold companies uh, saying we are interested in helping. Because in the end, founders are smart. You just give them the right information they adapt super quickly. And that is true for Canadian founders as a group, women founders as a group. They are eager and hungry for knowledge. And they have everything invested in the startup. Trust me, they are not, they're not holding back. It's all to us to help. I appreciate your insights and all the work you do and continue to do in that space. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round. I'd like to know what your favorite book is. And if it's hard to pick a favorite, maybe just something you're currently reading. Favorite book would be hard. My mother was a teacher, so I'm a book person. I have, I must have read thousands of that. And, and uh, biographies, I love biographies of people, different kinds, uh, political, political people, uh, historical figures. The one that I'm reading right now, I think that would be an easier question to answer is Morgan Housen's Psychology of Money, which I alluded to earlier. And I'm in the early parts of that, where he talks about, there's one thing, and it's not just about money as earning capacity, but money is how we use it to, you know, afford philanthropy, how we use it for making one a better place, how we make it improving our own lives. And he talks about it's, uh, how we think about money. It's, it's the one thing that they would be, and as an immigrant, I related to it, as the people who were born in the Depression have a completely different belief system. They will take the same information and interpret it differently. Immigrants do it differently. So that I would recommend, Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. It's a fantastic book. It is a great one. I'd like to know what you're most excited about in the next year, personally and professionally. I'm always excited about the new innovation. We are working with some really cool health tech and climate companies that have fundamental ability to change what we do today. So... I, th I would say I'm excited about founders, the ones I'm working with now, the ones I'm going to meet in the next 11 months and what they're doing and an opportunity to help them. That always excites me about my job and about our industry. How do you deal with hard times? Do you have any, you know, do you, do you meditate? Do you, do you go for, like you mentioned, going for runs earlier? Is there things that really help you out? I would say two things. There's many things, but two main things. The first one is, as a person having a North Star, where you are, you have a purpose, you have a bigger plan of things. So the small setbacks and, you know, side, you have to move laterally sometimes. And, you know, there's the days you make quantum leaps and the days you only put one, one foot in front of the other. But if you're moving towards a North Star, it is much easier 
you don't get arrogant when you get good times. That is also important. And you don't get that down when you have hard times, which inevitably happen. The second thing which I, I would commend, uh, advice which I would give to any young person, and I meet in any industry, uh, any, any job description, is build a tribe. Is there's, you know, you enter a room, any new room, there's some people that are naturally disposed to like you and you like them and you get along and you may not have a, any, I'm going to say, interaction in your career and your life with them at any time, but you just, you just feel happy with them and they, they feel happy with you. Build a tribe of those. And I have a fair collection of those. And when I was launching Startup Studio, I went through my network and picked the people that I really, really liked. And also had a fit with their guest. So that helps a lot because nobody does this alone. It is really hard to do it alone. And if you're a founder, there are a group of people who are always expecting optimistic upside news from you. And sometimes it is not. You need to have a conversation with somebody about things are not going well. But uh, even if you're in high school, college, start creating almost a roster of those people and spend invest time in building those relationships. And they may not have any intersection with your business at any time, but they will emotionally nurture you and support. Great advice. And that was my last question. So I'd just like to open the mic up to you to chat about Ty, anything that you want to kind of just get out there to the audience. Uh, just it's open mic for you. I would say need for uh, the Canadian ecosystem players. And that is the government agencies, semi-government agencies. We need to band together to help our founders. When we launched the Thai incubator, it was just asking help from about 20 groups that are located in British Columbia. And everybody generously showed up and supported. And if we can build this around Canada and we can bring our uh, brethren and sisters south of the border into it and you know, Thai is happy to provide the global perspective to that. But in Canada, we have amazing founders, amazing innovation. And in the incubator, we can do a small geographic footprint. This needs to be a bigger plan. And for the investors who might be hearing this, these companies actually do really, really well. So this is not a charity that we're asking for. This is a business game for both sides. Well, we need to ally more across Canada and the Canadians around the world to help our founders. So that would be my appeal to anybody who's listening. And if you have anything that you can do for the Alliance, anything we can do for you, please reach out. I love that. I really, yeah, and, and, and I definitely agree with that 100%. Meninder, this has been a ton of fun. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your insights and uh, your time today has been a lot of fun. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.